OCO and greetings. I'm Jay Winter Night Wolf, and this is the American Indian Indigenous People's Truths. Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio and podcasts anywhere. I'll be back in just a minute to introduce my guest for today. Great mystery, teach me how to trust my heart, my mind, my intuition, my inner knowing, the sense of my body, the blessing of my spirit. Teach me to trust these things so that I may enter my sacred space and love beyond my fear and thus walk in balance with the passing of each glorious sun. I'm not Indian, I'm not Native American, Indigenous, or First Nations. This one is very tricky. Over 600 years of being incorrect, our primarily white government has made American Indian an official term for Natives. In fact, the official federal agency that oversees Native land management is called the Bureau of Indian Affairs. However, I know a lot of natives that don't like being called Indian because that just isn't who we are. We're not from India. A good rule of thumb for this is when referring to natives, call us Native American, Indigenous, First Nations, or by our specific band or tribe if you want some extra ally points and just let natives call each other Indian. I'm Jay Winter Nightwolf, and my guest today is a very, very close friend of mine for many years. His name is Don Wolf. Don Wolf has appeared on radio broadcasts with me over the years. And I would like to take this opportunity to introduce to you my friend, Don Wolf. How are you, brother? I'm doing fine, Nightwolf. Thank you for having me here. Tell us from where you hail, who your people are. My people are um, Crow Nation from the Muscogee Nation, um, West Africa. And my father's side, there's the, there is the African, and there is the, uh, well, the Blackfeet and the Cherokee, but mostly the Blackfeet on my father's side. Your father was a very interesting man. I, I really miss him, and I know your family does as well. Yes, yeah, I do. But I, I walk with my father because he, 
invested so much in me and us, and it merged. And often, as I get older, when I speak, I hear my father's voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, brother. You know, uh, with all that's going on now, with this Black Lives Matter, uh, there's very little mention of Native Lives Matter. First of all, would you give me your take on this whole thing about Black Lives Matter? Well, it's not an easy subject, but to your first point, uh, Native people are in school. You're, You're practically invisible, and as I've traveled around the country, I was stunned at the number of people who think that we're invisible, even now. But some movies that have come out have given us a face, but not the voice. And so um, in this movement with Black Lives Matter, uh, Native people are not part of the discussion. They're not part of the thinking process that, that is going on. And uh, it's there is the... Um, once again, there are the major concerns around uh, black Americans. And, uh, but the one thing, there's, there, there's one thing that bothers me, has always bothered me since I was very young, about uh, black Americans and about protests. But before I go to that, a brief background. My father, uh, in the 60s, was the chairman of the Congress of Racial Equality, and he was working as a diplomat for the State Department, which was against State Department policy, but that was Daddy's commitment. Daddy said that his commitment in life was to, for his gifts, education, his training, to be for the benefit of his people here in the United States, in the Caribbean, and in Africa. And so I had the privilege of sitting or eavesdropping, because I was such a curious child, and I would listen to the bull sessions, the planning sessions that were going on, and some of the names people would recognize if I said them. And uh, there was there were two things that I, um, I want to point out that are clear when you read it, but there were serious strategy sessions, and there was a connection in a lineage going backwards in time. But coming forward, there was a plan that went decade to decade, generation to generation, that led up to the moment, that built the momentum of the 60s. And in that, and in that, what I don't hear in, the, in these young black kids today, I don't hear them going and sitting with the elders who, and ones who have experience, experienced warriors, the ones with the, the insights into this. What I hear is a repetition of anger, I want results. But I'm not going to invest in the things like sitting with those who've gone before, studying in depth who, who were the contributory intellects and contributory spirits, who were the warriors of, of heart, that were in the game, for lack of a better term, before now. What I hear is um, is an empty sound. And then it was reflected because it's sad and it's 
and, and it's infuriating and it's frightening the way that um, the white police officers, police departments are allowed to uh, shoot and kill black men. That's scary. But the activists are, are not going to the source. Every jurisdiction that has police departments tell and dictate or they insinuate or all of the above what they want the police to do in their community. For example, some decades ago when I was a police officer during the drug wars, that was one of the key things that I learned when I would go into communities. I wanted to know, or I was told, even though I wanted to know, what they wanted done with the drug dealers. And I was, we were allowed to do certain things that were, in my interpretation, were cruel. But I, I had to, I had to find a way to mediate what I was allowed to do. Because when I say that Black Lives Matter, it's not a slogan. It, it is a, a life way of seeing life as sacred. And what I mean by that, from the perspective of a former police officer. When I got into the situations of extreme violence that would lead to um, having to use my weapon, having to use a nightstick or my hands, whether I was a one-on-one or I was in a gang situation, severely outnumbered, one of the things that I was known for was what I practiced and what I taught my officers. And it was this. If you have to take a man down, your responsibility afterwards is to build that man up because if you don't build his spirit up, you have created an enemy who will overcome his fear at some point and hunt you down. It's very fundamental when you get into the warrior teachings that are, that are part of our ancestry, the Cherokee, the, the, all the different tribes. They had warrior societies, and in those warrior societies were uh, rituals, there was training, and it started very young. The elders could, and the elders were always a part of the raising of the warrior. What we have now is we have a lot of we have a lot of black children out there in their twenties and thirties who are justifiably angry, but they don't have uh, control over their spirit. And if anyone who's there, who is their projected enemy, picks that up, you manipulate it. And in my travels over the years, without going into a long and complex story, I have sat with and, and broken bread with Klansmen. Got to the point where I was able to listen to their stories for one simple reason. I asked to hear their stories. And in these places, in Kind of, some of them were kind of, a couple of them were kind of scary places. I'm listening to their stories about the uh, uh, things that they have done, but mostly I wanted to understand what was in the heart. And one of the things that's inside of the heart of a lot of these, what we call uh, these crackers, whatever, and, and the other terms that we that we used against them, was that was a fear. And when I discovered the fear that was inside of white people. My responsibility was to understand it. Whether I used it was dependent upon my intent and the integrity of why I was in their presence. 
whether they were coming at me as an enemy, which has happened, or whether they were coming for me because they recognized that they needed help. Because what white people don't do, I've learned over my lifetime and from studying, they never know how to ask for forgiveness. And that's a puzzle. How can you do the things that you have done historically, which are, and then write everything down, but not in their heart do you repent? So back to the marching. The other thing that grieves me is that, and keep in mind the background I've given, one of the things that grieves me is that all these white people around the country, young white folks and older white folks, are engaged in protests. You're, my question to them, you're doing what? You're the problem. The reason those black kids are out there, the reason that they are scared and infuriated is because of what you, in your silence or by what you have voted for, what you have implied or distinctly said, you're the reason that they're out there. So why are you there taking up the spotlight and projecting the rage of the people that you will not do the one thing that, that one of the things that they need and that one of those things that, that those black kids and, and black Americans cross country need is to have removed from our founding fathers, from our founding papers is the legitimacy of slavery because slavery, according to the constitution was never ever abolished. It's still there. That clause is still there. And then that always stops the conversation. And it, for me, at the stage of life I'm at, is it's a source of grief because the inevitable, the patterns are predictable and it's already happening. The policemen are already going out there and they're already starting to kill black men for the most trivial of reasons. And as a former officer, I know when you kill like that, you're afraid, but you're emboldened because you know there is a network that will protect you. And there are not enough police officers who have the warrior training of what to do with what I call those cracker police officers. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're kind of like a strange breed who have a look that will terrify you because they know you can't touch them. And so... There's some more, but I hope I didn't say too much. But this no, is a no, no. This, is a very, this thing touches me deeply because I um one of the reasons because I didn't plan this, but I prepared for it from the time my second child was born. My my second child is a was a boy, and uh, I trained all of my children um, the best way I could, and then I went further than my best in the old ways from my African uh, uh, traditions and from my um, native traditions. And I had to do it in a secret because at the time I was involved with the church. And so I, I, I did this in a way where I'm going to reveal it on the radio so that when it, when this time was right, it would surface and it surfaced many times. And my son, uh, at some point in his life, joined the military, which I did not want him to do. He went. He went over to the Arab world and fought there. And I did his thing there. Came back and he became a police officer in the D.C. metropolitan area. And uh, this this 
uh, I don't know if I should talk about his um, his armed confrontation that he had, but I will say that uh, the reason that it uh, uh, his his gun confrontation that he had, the one I'm thinking of, that w- would have wound up in the paper, was that inside of him were the teachings of the ancestors that his father put in him. I so carefully and skillfully did I plant them in there. At the end of the altercation, everybody who had witnessed this incident that he had said the same thing to his commanding officer. And his commanding officer asked my son, he said, everyone said that you, if you had taken that shot, you would have been justified. I want to know, how did you know that that young man did not have a gun under his shirt? And the only thing my son could say was, I just knew. So he comes to my house. He asked me, how did I know? And I told him the medicine story, that how I did it, but I did it when he was at the age of two. The reason I'm sharing that, I've never shared it in public, but the reason I'm sharing that is that from the perspective of the natives, and of the Africans in that order is that uh, warrior traditions um, have within them they have the, they have a relationship with spirit and a commitment to uh, ancestors, and they have the blessing and permission of their parents and their grandparents' parents. And then the fourth thing is that they are constantly aware that their actions go down through their generations, whether they have high children or not, they affect the generations to come. And in our, our modern of our traditions in, uh, in native land is that seven generations. And uh, seven is a, is a very powerful number. And so, excuse me, and there's seven directions in some of the medicine world teachings that we have. Mm-hmm. And uh, before there's seven, there's four. And then those four, uh, the number four um, goes to uh, into the core of our teachings. And so should an officer uh, connect with his uh, connect with his traditions, whether he's European or not, is a, is a question that I needed to ask myself. And then when I was in the game, ask of my officers. Hmm. I only had one officer that was white at the time. He couldn't answer those questions. And uh, he, at some point, because of what I what he did and what I had to do in response, because I'm responsible for the man, uh, I I got rid of him, but not in the fashion that you're thinking. Where I went through paperwork, I did things and my responsibility uh, as a man and. Uh, I'm not going to repeat it on the air, but there are ways to deal with uh, the brutality of white Americans. And white Americans are very clear in how they can direct the fear that's within within black Americans. And the fact is that that fear has more power than black Americans want to admit. And, I, and I'm not saying it from reading. I'm saying it because I had to face my own fear of white people. And one of the uh, 
defining moments of my young life in my late 20s at my job, there was a white girl, a woman, we were about the same age at the time, and I remember her clearly. She had her name, she was short, and her name was Jackie Cox. She one day out of the blue, she come down and say to me, she said, um, I'm going to teach you how white men with power think. Like, what? Show me. And for the next couple months, this woman would come down and show me stuff. Hmm. And a lot of the stuff boggled my mind. I mean, one day, she, she said to me, every, she said, every black person is terrified of white people, particularly white men. I went, Shh. no, she said, no, 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 no. Even you. I went, no, not me. I'm this. I'm, oh, no. I'm her gorgeous son, blah, blah, blah. I, went, I, I was just, you know, I'm like a proud horse stomping my hoofs in the dirt. She, was, she just said, okay, I'll show you. She walked away. And then on her time, a few weeks later, we're, we're talking. She comes down to my desk. And we're just talking. And as we're talking, something happened to me and it was like a flash. Something hit me and I was immediately, I was terrified to the point where my gut was sore. I was so afraid. She said, I told you. I went, what? She said, I told you. What are you talking about? I told you. She said, what I, she said, what did you just see? And I said, I, I just saw myself um, getting ready to get hung on a tree by these white men. She said, I told you. And she told me that what she had said and the trigger word had triggered this deep fear in my life from when I was little. But I didn't even know where it came from. And I had, and upon analysis, except my father, it came. I remember that my father had told me a story of when he was nine years old in a little town, Danville, Illinois. And he said that at nine, that these white boys caught him in the classroom and threw a noose over uh, over a metal pipe or something or a light in the classroom and put the noose on his little neck, talking about hanging him. Then they changed their mind and walked out the room. And that mm. affected Daddy the rest of his life. Mm. Not it, it didn't make him a victim. He be, he went he Daddy went inside as he grew into manhood and he became a warrior in the deepest sense of the word. And so. This thing has to be addressed as a warrior, not be, not like, to me, these kids are strong, they're bold, but they haven't got to the place where they can move outside of being manipulated like a puppet. They need to be connected with those whom I mentioned earlier because they have to sit down. There's a lot of thinking, but primarily to this, they need to sit down and understand power and the first stage of learn understanding power is to unlearn everything that you know and it takes decades and it's terrifying to do it and most people i've noticed over the years won't do it yeah that's true because it's, it's terrifying yeah. and I, I don't I, i'm at the place now where i don't condemn them anymore it leaves me with a sadness and so i'm thinking maybe uh, the words of the elders uh, will go down and hit someone or a group two generations from now. 
Don Wolf, um, when schools were desegregated in the South, and little black boys and little black girls, and little white boys and little white girls, and little native boys and girls, were allowed to coexist in the same classroom. You know, maybe I'm just wishing, or maybe I'm not clear, but I think that was the time in the history of this country when white folks begin to realize that black kids and native kids were human beings. Prior to that, they weren't recognized as that. They call us savages and they call black people less than human. And over the years, that has grown into a situation where a lot of these different color kids became friends in the classroom. And then as they got grown, they began to continue to be friends. And out of that over the years from the 50s up to the present time in the uh, 2000s, they've come to realize that everybody is human. Everybody has feelings. However, white kids are, are having an advantage that they have, have had for a long time because they were given a better shake at this society. Their parents got better jobs, got better education, and were able to move on up, as they say, in the economic brackets of this so-called Republic of the United States. But I think a lot of them, you know, when they begin to date each other and marry each other and have children, these mixed kids, are beginning to realize that, you know, I'm talking like, you know, from the white perspective, okay, well, my sister married this black man, but guess what? Her kids are my nieces and nephews. Or um, when white men change the whole society of Native America, when they begin to rape our women, murder our men, and then all of a sudden these mixed kids were born. What's your take on that? I remember when... um the laws changed in the late 60s. And uh, what I remember most was uh, the rage and the fear. And uh, I remember um, I remember in high school, uh, we wound up in a predominantly black school in Maryland. I mean, predominantly white school in Maryland. And man, you don't know how to fight. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You were out of luck because the white folks were serious, and um, we used to call poor whites. We used to call them grits for some reason, <laughs> and uh, they were always finding ways to jump you, get in fights, uh, uh, fire, getting firebombed. I'm just talking, I'm talking about Fort Washington, Maryland, and uh, the friendships that came between whites and blacks were hard earned, and. Uh, what I, I, I remember, I know with me, the, when I began to make friends with whites, it was only after they saw how uh, viciously I fought at being called a nigger. Mm. And um, I um, didn't, uh, prior to that, I was a kid living in the Philippines. And the first time I heard the word nigger. And the short of the story, 
is when I heard it, I blacked out. And I had to, when I came out of the blackness, which was a rage, I had beat three kids really bad. One was a girl. Mm. And we weren't allowed to touch girls. I knew I was going to get a whipping for that. <laughs> but when I went home, I asked Mommy and Daddy, uh, I said, I went to Mommy, I said, Mommy, what is a nigger? Mommy looked at me. She was stunned. Because in the diplomatic world, a children can affect your your father's uh, place. And uh, Daddy said, sit down. And he broke it down to me. Next day, my teacher, this old white woman named Mrs. Sherman, um, uh, she, she did a massive facilitation in a time that when I look back, I did not know that whites could understand both sides of the issue. But she was the exception. Hmm. And uh, often I notice here and there when I'm looking at pieces, I've, I've noticed that there's a tendency for whites to hear, look for stories like that. Right. And on purpose, I've never written that story down because I didn't want that to become part of the vernacular. And uh, what they don't understand was that um, little me uh, saw how powerful that word was that I did not know because we, my parents protected me from that as best as they could. And what my parents saw, what my parents saw was that those who came before me who could not and wanted to do what I did, they saw that come out of me. Mm. And so our responsibility at this stage uh, is to, and I'm glad you reminded me of that, is to get these children to understand these stories, to understand it in depth as the old people tell it to them, the ones who fought for it. And they also need to understand why people, black folks, did two things, why they passed, those who did, and the others who, who by our definition, who tarmed. Because it was a reaction to how violent, without mercy, white people are and can be. And um, it takes a great deal. I should speak for myself. It took a great deal for me to get close uh, to um, white men to become friends. And one of the things I did in the beginning was we had this discussion. We talked about it. Or there was an incident would happen. And they would see me unleash something. And they were like, whoa, whoa, we just thought you were a peace-loving guy, a great musician, blah, blah, blah. I said, but cross the line. Okay. And Let's take a quick break and come back. Um, I'm Jay Winner Nightwolf, the American Indian's Troops, Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. My guest today is Don Wolf, a very close friend of mine. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
We're back. This is the American Indian Indigenous People's Troops, Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio, podcasts, anywhere. My guest today is my good friend, Don Wolf. Don, before we went to break, um, you had really gotten heavy into this whole psyche of uh, black, native, and white relationships. When you identify yourself how do you identify yourself? Are you identifying yourself as black or Indian or what? I, um, when I came in the world, my only idea of myself was that I was uh, a Crow Indian. Mm-hmm. So I knew. Because mm-hmm. my grandfather, when I was born, of all his descendants, uh, he put me out, sitting on his lap, and he taught me. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until my teenage years uh, early teenage years, that I had to think in depth about uh, Black Americans, mm-hmm. what that is, and um, that was that was confusing to me uh, because I got it. I kept getting the sense that uh, I was trying to find identity among people who were telling themselves that when they stood on a lily pad, they were standing on Earth, and. So when I got a little older, we went to live in in, um, North and West Africa. Mm. I went there uh, not thinking that I was, I realized very quickly when I touched the land, and as a side note, I recommend that people, white or black, go to Africa anywhere and touch that soil because touching Africa's soil will change you. Yes. And uh, uh, when I got there, um, I was uh, the the Crow Indian, just like leaped up for joy, and I had great time learning the languages and everything. And it was there that uh, different Africans from different tribes would recognize it and see it, and they asked me about it. Here it was very different, so I, I um, it was quite the journey, and I it, and and then, since we're talking about identity, I had to delve really deep in because I into I to identity of who I am in terms of Africa, and it didn't make it, I didn't get clarity until I lived in Africa um, and may, and played the music and most importantly ate the food. And as another side note, anyone that goes to visit Africa, the first place you should go is to mark traditional old fashioned marketplaces because that's that's the heart and soul and the women run it. And beyond that you can't I can't convey why that's so important to understand. Because one of the conflicts we have in terms of identity is how we as men place ourselves with women. Absolutely. You know, before um I'll go back to the phrase that the law sports had before the white man came. Uh, women, our women were always in charge. And it was only because white men would not talk to our native women because they had no respect for their women, so that means they had no respect at all. But I, I do remember, you know, growing up in a house where, of course, my father was present, my mother was present, aunts were there, and cousins, female cousins, and uh, grandma, 
one of my grandmothers was always around. And we knew for a fact that they were in charge, period. And, you know, my, my respect for women came from my upbringing, you know, because I had a grandmother, she told you to do something, you did it. If not, you had consequences to pay. And I believe you had that same situation too, right? That's <laughs> funny. I, Daddy used to, um, big, strong, manly man, everything. And Molly would just say a sentence. Daddy would completely change. <laughs> he used to tickle us. Mm-hmm. And Daddy told me one time, uh, he said, you need to, we were joking about this, teasing about it. And Daddy, I remember one day he stopped laughing. He said, pointed at his son, he said, you needed to see that. We were like, whoa. Because one of the things that we had to get out of our systems was what was put in us and, and implied in us uh, before we were cognizant of it uh, was that we were better, that women, and that we came first. Mm-hmm. And uh, remember when Shirley Chisholm ran, put her, her hat in to run for president? Yeah, I remember that, yeah. You remember how brutal the humor was? And all of us, myself included, we were on the floor laughing at it. Red Fox, all of them. They were brutal but funny, ripping her to shreds. Mm -hmm. And so we were all in the living room just laughing. And I felt something. I looked around, and Mommy was standing by the fireplace with a a look that cut me to my soul. And I just Mm -hmm. froze. And it dawned on me what was going on inside of Mommy's soul. And it that had the most profound effect. It was like having a life from on high, but it came from mommy and it hit me in my chest. And I stopped all the joking and I stopped laughing and I just stared at mommy. Because really what we were doing was laughing at mommy and her determination to do things with her life. Mm-hmm. Education, travel, et cetera, et cetera. And, we were, and I brought that up with mommy years later. And... Uh, because I'd heard her talking about um, schooling some young girls, and she told them, she says, uh, she says it wasn't that long ago when uh, actually she told she told my wife when we got married. Uh, I found out later that, uh, and mom, I asked mommy. Mommy said, "Yeah, I did tell her." She said she pulled my wife aside and told her. She said, uh, "It's fine to have uh, make money and have you and have a shared bank account, but you make sure." that you have your own money and your own account because it wasn't that long ago when we as women could not have bank accounts. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, those, these are things that the young people need to hear and understand because um, if you don't, if, if, if you don't fight for your freedom and it's given to you, it produces, um, what's what I'm looking for? You're not really free. You know, Don Wolf, I, I remember your mother, you know, and quite a woman she was. And the last time I saw her alive was I was in a grocery store, and she looked at me. She says, come here, boy. How you doing? I said, I'm fine. <laughs> she did not call him boy. <laughs> yes, she did. Yes, she did. You know, she but did? That's, yeah, that's a loving, That's you know, that's a... That's a term of endearment coming from your elder. And uh, I walked over to her, and she gave me a hug. She says, are you okay? I said, yes, I am. She says, okay. 
well, talk to you later. See ya. And, you know, that was the last time I saw your mother alive. And I can't tell you how much I loved her, man. You know, she was just a good woman. Reminded me so much of my mom. And you were very fortunate to have her and your father for your parents. Great people. I, I was very fortunate. Mm-hmm. I was aware of it when they were alive and and after they died. Right. And uh, one needs to be cognizant of and appreciative of the gifts you're given. That's right. I, I, my my brothers and sisters, we were born into a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. So when people hear that, they think first thing that comes to their mind is money. Uh uh-uh, uh. No. Want for things, but it was it wasn't that alone. It was the what they embodied and what they poured into us and how they did it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about parenting that's important is seeing yourself and your children and your grandchildren in the future. You got to see yourself projected into the into the years that you will never physically see. And, and grandparents only see the future through their grandchildren. That's right. Okay, now I want to I want to I want to skip to another subject. You know, I was reading an article today that says racial slurs are racist, no matter how antiquated they may be. And they were talking about. Um, I'll just read part of the article from. Uh, it says, "This one should be no a no-brainer, but red skin and Indian Indian are never okay words to say." I do not care if you are a huge fan of the Washington's football team, Redskin is a slur, and that you are not allowed to say that. If I hear you say this around me, I'll give you a warning out of politeness. But after that, I will personally cancel your ass. (laughs) Even if you hear two natives talking and one of them says it to, to the other, that's that does not give you permission to use that. If you ask any native, I'm sure they'll, they, they've, they've been called enough of those several times during harsh moments of racism, although engine is a fairly uncommon use of that word today. Now, I know, Don Wolf, that you know we've had conversations with people that were like us, Native people, and we call each other skins. But it's not the same terminology that white people use in their vernacular against us. What is your your take on that? And, And before you give me that take, I noticed that it was a week ago, last week, that uh, Mayor Mario Bowser of Washington, D.C., uh, gave uh, Dan Snyder a warning that if you ever want to have another place in Washington, D.C. for your team, you will change the name. She said that? Yes, she did. She got all over him. Get out of it. Ooh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah. I saw it on the news, and I couldn't believe it, and they played it again at 10 o'clock news. I said, go ahead, Mayor Bowser. You know, she she has had it, just like so many other people have had it with words like uh, redskin, engine. Engine is a car engine. Um, Nigger, 
You know, all of those words, we have had it with the use of those words towards us, people of color. What's your take on that? I, I um, since I was little, I will not say red skin. Uh, engine I used to hear uh, as a vernacular on Westerns, and uh, but I, I don't, I don't like saying it. And, and the 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 Washington football team. Every time I hear people say that word, the name of that team, I keep envisioning. Um, Indian Head Highway in Maryland. And, and you know, the reason they named it Indian Head Highway was uh, white folks used to cut off the heads of these Native men from this area and hang them on a post straight up that road. And every mm-hmm. time I hear that word, I see those heads on those posts. And uh, it, it grieves me. But the other reason why I don't do it is because I noticed that Football fans uh, cling to it, and I they have, and they because there's a there's a religion around sports, and it has the same energy that they have around Christianity is around sports, and it's a dangerous thing to bring this up when you're in the football stand because they're drinking, and uh, white boys particularly when they drink a lot. Uh, the murder spirit comes out of it. And uh, I'm not really, I'm not into the game. I don't watch it, but I do, I have gone because my wife has taken me uh, to the stadium to watch the games. And I just enjoy sitting there. I adore the trash talking and uh, I enjoy pretending like I'm drinking beer. I always have ginger ale on the rocks. I just enjoy it, but that always bothers me. And, uh, one day, um, um, I'm sure the day has already happened where someone got hurt when they bring the subject up. Because when it, I've noticed when um, uh, black folks, uh, I had to learn how to, to um, hold my emotions and just stay in, in the company of, of whomever I was with was because uh, black Americans in the Washington, D.C. area uh, respond to all of the trigger words that were used during Jim Crow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, how, how do you fight against the prick or a thorn that's in a rose bush? And um, you can pick a rose, but if you don't know how to avoid the thorns, you'll never get to the rose. That's right. And so I don't know what will, will happen to change the thought process, most importantly, the energy around it, until uh, black Americans um, are free from uh, the chains that bind them in all the areas that they should not have chains. And so, like in public, every blue moon, it has come up, and people didn't even know where I stood on it, have looked at me and apologized. For mm-hmm. using the word, and then it dawned on me: uh, if you walk in your in your medicine, I'm saying this for younger people. If you you walk in your medicine or your purpose, uh, it has a silent language that speaks even to those uh, who are plotting against you. And uh, 
sooner or later, uh, it may change. But here, the mayor speak about it. Uh, the reason that resonated with me was because this was a, a black woman who uh, masterfully uh, took the power from President Trump mm-hmm. across the Lafayette. That was just one of the most masterful things. And she was prepared for it, but she did not ask for it. And when she saw uh, how the president operated from a, a profound set of fears, mm-hmm. and the way he he demonstrated what he has always excluded. I've been studying Washington since I was the eighties, and he have always what always stood out was his, his contempt for women and youth. Right. And when he displayed it, when he came across Lafayette Square, he met Miriam, uh, our mayor, this mayor down in D.C. and th- that. Ever since I saw that, that thing has moved me so deeply. And then to watch that woman with power and studied, she studied for this, the way that she took the entire city mm-hmm. and with quiet commands, she got, she found the leaders and she, here's some, here's something, here's power, and it became a collective. And they took the power of the presidency from Donald Trump without boasting about it, just yeah. through action. And that, that is a, that's a powerful medicine story. One day I'm going to be able to sit down and write it, and I would love to be sitting in ceremony to be able to share this with young people so we can go in depth, like spend four days together, just to understand what happened, transpired there. I think I veered off the subject of sports. No, that's okay. But you, no, you, you may have veered off the subject of sports for a second, but you did stay on the subject of principle. That's that's what we're supposed to be governed by: principle or vision. What's your vision? What are the principles that support your life force? Whether you're a good person or a bad person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we've got like maybe. Five more minutes of this Good. interview, and and uh-huh. I, I I really want to ask you a favor, and I know you do it. Will you come back again so that we can talk again? Oh, you talk me into it, man! You are so pers- so persuasive. <laughs> that's because you I, through all of my resistance. <laughs> that, that that's because I love you, brother. That's that's why uh-huh. you know we've been friends so long, and uh, I hope we have many more years together in this place, in this time, in this universe? Well, we, we can um, because of our wives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to you women. <laughs> First commandment with consequence. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, let me Man, ask let thank me, you. Thank Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me ask you a question. Um, what do you see for the future of blacks, Indians, white folks, and the people of the color race? What do you see? I know what you hope for, the same things I hope for, but what do you see as a future, and how do we further unite each other? I see what I see with blacks. The Native community, uh, there's, a, there's a shift 
Um, and the advantage that many of the native, many of the nations have is that they have, they still have their ceremonies and they still have their stories. And those that don't know which nations to go to and they build relationships with those nations to keep the traditions going. Black Americans are not connected to the essentials, not connected to the rituals, the ceremonies, and the stories that give their power and that makes their medicine uh, uh, potent. And so where toxicity is inside of a person, when you can't take the taste no more, you're going to change your diet and what you eat. So the question lies on, is it li- when it lies on the elders, uh, it's grievous because uh, it feels like, and in action it seems like, just in the black community, uh, there's no place for the elders. But we need you, but we know everything. Among Native people, uh, uh, the thing that grieves me in my soul and I don't have any answers for is the number of, of suicides. How do you, uh, how do you, um, how do you work in that? What, what do you do? Uh, I, I, I need to cut because this is a sore subject and make tears come to my eyes. And I, I've spent a lot of time trying with others. How do you approach that? And because when our children want to take their lives, there's something that we are not hearing or and or there are things that we cannot do. And why is it that we cannot do them? And uh, I know that uh, in, in the Indian country, there's a lot of work working uh, to help our young, uh, our young who are uh, mm-hmm. uh, getting away from the suicide. Uh, but um, most of America doesn't know what I just said about I, I will say this. Um, there's been quite a few studies on youth suicide in Indian country. And we have the highest rate of youth suicide of any people in the world. And I was talking to several of our brothers that are learned scholars and professors. And they all attributed to one thing. I said, what is it? It's in the DNA explain it's called traumatic trauma that is evident in our dna so um that's a that's a subject for another time soon thank you again don wolf and uh, thank you for having me night wolf absolutely and we'll talk again real soon oh and goai wado I would like to thank my guest and good friend, Crow Creek Indian, Don Wolf, for taking time out to talk to us today. The cold reality of life in America today has not changed since the European invasions of the late 1490s. The theft of our homelands, murder of our people of color, along with our black sisters and brothers and our sisters and brothers that migrate from south of Tejas or Texas. 
Where do we go from here? How do we change the future for the, the next seven generations that follow us? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had it right when he delivered these words years ago during the Civil Rights Movement in the mid-20th century. The crisis in race relations can be attributed to the fact that there are still too many of our white brothers who are concerned about the length of life rather than the breadth of life, concerned about their economic, their preferred economic positions, their political power and dynasties, their social status, their so-called way of life. And if only they would substitute or rather add breath to length, if only they would add the other regarding dimension to the self-regarding dimension, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. One day all men and women of this nation must come to see that God made all of us to live together as brothers, that somehow every man must respect the dignity and worth of human personality, and ultimately a man must be judged not on the basis of the color of his skin, but the content of his character. Somewhere we must discover the world over that we must learn to live together as brothers or we will all perish together as fools. Let me remind you that I love you all, all of you, even those of you that make it almost impossible to love. I love you anyway. I'm Jay Winter Nightwolf. If the white man wants to live in peace with the Indian, he can live in peace. There need be no trouble. Treat all men alike. Give them all the same law. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. You might as well expect the rivers to run backward, as that any man who was born a free man should be contented when penned up and denied liberty to go where he pleases. We only ask an even chance to live as other men live. We ask to be recognized as men. Let me be a free man, free to travel, free to stop, free to work, free to choose my own teachers, free to follow the religion of my fathers, free to think and talk and act for myself.